Hi, this is Amanda Dolan and welcome to the Mental Society. Today we are joined by Paulette Buchanan. Paulette is a former educator who has taught students from elementary school all the way through college. Paulette has served her community as a volunteer for over 40 years. And since 2007, Paulette has worked with other victims and legislators to bring about needed changes in the law to protect individuals and society. She is a member of the International Cultic Studies Association, and in November of 2019, she presented at their conference speaking on legislative action as part of the healing process. And in February 2020, she was the Table Talk moderator on the topic Cults and the Law. Her goal is to inform public um, and the public and policymakers on issues of court reform, cults, religious fraud, mental illness, policy reform, and government corruption. That's a lot. <laughs> Thank you, Paulette, so much for joining me. You are a busy woman. Thank you. Um, Thank you for having me. So why don't we start with a little bit of your story and what got you to this place of being an advocate? Yeah, um, it really kind of started, you know, you have a life plan when as you get older through your teen years and 20s. And I have never thought this would be where I would be right now. Um, it took me eight years to write my book, Fighting for Justice, Religious Fraud, Mental Illness, and the Collapse of Law and Order, um, as actually um, put in my head by a civil rights attorney who mm -hmm. I explained our situation to, uh, what my brother was doing to me, one brother in particular. Um, and she said, you really need to write a book about this. And uh, so eight years Eight years it took me to write it, very painful. Um, a lot of self-examination, a lot of examination of, you know, what in the world has gone on? We've had so many people ask us, why is your brother stalking you, your own brother? What did you do to him to make him so angry at you? You know, questions like that. And, and well-meaning, I mean, you know, most people come from backgrounds where their brothers or their siblings are not aggressive. Uh, are not criminals um, and are just leaving them alone if they don't get along with each other. Right. Um, but in my case, it really goes back to even before I was born, um, things that I added up from the time I was a child. And then especially in the last remaining years of my mother's life, I, I took care of her the last four years of her life. And she really, she had her own sort of self-examination period at that time. She, you know, she knew she was terminal with COPD and um, she really started evaluating the way she had allowed her sons to take, take advantage of her and some of the issues that she had with them before I was even born. They are all older than me, my four older brothers. Um, one is like 10 and a half, uh, nine and a half, uh, basically about eight and seven years older than I am. And they all exhibited problems as children of having some kind of a mental disorder. They really resented any kind of authority figures. They were very oppositional to teachers. They were very um, derogatory toward their peers, always thinking that they had superiority over everyone, really, their peers, adults, um, and cruel. They, they beat up on each other all the time. And that worsened as mm -hmm. after I came into the picture. And then what my memories are of them in their teen years, it was a nightmare. Um, there wasn't really a lot of mental health services available, especially for children. 
um, during the 50s when they were born in the 60s when they were teenagers and I was just a child. Um, But, you know, even with that, boy, I, I, I have to. I talk about this in my book. I have to wonder if it may have only tamped it down a bit rather than really you know, curing them of any sorts. So um, bottom line of it is this one particular brother, um, all of them hate me. Um, they all kind of hate each other. But, you know, I use this expression in my book, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> and so, you know, they kind of gang up on me. Um, and I thought as I got into my 20s, especially, you know, they went their own way. I figured, you know what? Good riddance. Be on your way. I'll do my life and you do yours. And that'll be the end of it. But a lot of it stems from jealousy. A lot of it, um, you know, I used to hear, as I explained in my book, you know, life was so much better before you came along and, and, you know, things like this. And it's like, you know, it wasn't, um, it, you know, it was an ordinary childhood they had, you know, I think both my parents, you know, they came out of the depression. Um, my dad was a prisoner of war in Japan during world war two. His father was abusive. And it's a funny, I always say genetics is a crapshoot because we have really good family members on both sides, but we also have absolute psychopaths on both sides. Uh, one uncle of my mother's, he served time in a prison for the criminally insane, and he died there um, mm. in the 1950s. I mean, he had raped children. Um, all of my brothers have criminal records of some sort, mostly for violence against women. Um, they have had addiction problems as well. And so, and they, they don't usually hold down jobs for very long and they don't have good reputations. So um, it really comes to a point I made in my book that had I lived, let's say 75 years ago, the mental health system we had at that was by and large run by the state. Uh-huh. It was not perfect. In fact, there was some horrific abuses, not only toward the mentally ill, but toward anyone mentally disabled. So if you had children born with what we now call autism and they were institutionalized, it was horrific. Uh-huh. Um, and so with that, um, President Kennedy actually had good intentions to privatize the mental health system because his sister was also mentally disabled and he wanted to have a more compassionate system. There were some good state-run mental hospitals. I actually spoke to a retired mental health nurse who worked in Virginia um, State Hospital. And she basically, she ran a very tight ship. She was one of the supervising nurses. And she said, we will treat everybody with dignity. And that's what she did. Um, But going back to President Kennedy, you know, he did want to address some of the horrible failures of the state run mental health system and provide a more compassionate mental health system that was privately run, state monitored. Um, It could receive some state funds as well. And that got mangled over the course of time. Of course, President Kennedy died in 63. And oh, it just the ACLU grabbed hold of it. You had sort of what you might want to call progressive uh, legislators, judges who said, you know what, it's the mental health hospitals that are making these people sick. 
we need to get them out of there and put them out onto the streets to basically have them, you know, they have the right to be on their own. Right. And we can provide them with community health centers, they were called, where these people, if they think they need assistance and they need, you know, medication for their condition, they can receive that. And boy, doesn't that sound great? And oh, by the way, we'll we'll save a ton of money because we'll shut all these mental health hospitals down. What I heard is is they'll get help if they think they need it. If they think they need it. So if you, yes, there are some people, if you're facing depression, if you're facing some you know, milder forms of manic depression, um, if you're having anxiety, yes, you can determine, gosh, I need some help. You know, I, I, I need some help. Right. I need to get something. Maybe their own physician will recommend something to them, something like that to go to these community health centers. But for some of these people who were released, they were schizophrenics. They were um, severe manic depression mm -hmm. um, or with bipolar, and they could not function in society. Um, there's a, a story in the 1980s, uh, in the hometown where my, my husband grew up, they used to have a street festival every summer. They would close off the main street to car traffic, and it was a great big boulevard. And they had all the stores offering sales. It was a big event. Yeah. A lot of people went to it. And in the middle of broad daylight, this guy who had been recently released from the state hospital, he was diagnosed schizophrenic. In broad daylight, he stabbed to death a little girl as she stood next to her mother in broad daylight, soon after they closed the mental hospitals. You know, yes, there were bad mental hospitals, not all of them, but there were too many of them. But we have currently really bad nursing homes, some really bad hospitals, really inefficient, really incompetent. Do we shut every single nursing home and hospital down and throw Alzheimer's patients, dementia patients, Parkinson's disease patients out onto the street and say, oh, really, you have the right to be out here. You take care of yourself. You know, it, it's just so inhumane to have done this, so cruel, really, to have done this and not a sign of a civilized, compassionate society. And so one of the things that I'm trying to work with, and actually Tennessee legislature has a bill proposed, and we are working with our legislators to say, you support this bill. It gives more power to judges to commit somebody into involuntary treatment who has made active threats to either harm themselves or harm other people. And it, it is makes the process for family members, for um, law enforcement, for physicians, to anybody, really, the, the general public, to report this, a, a neighbor, for example, a coworker, to say, look, this guy is, is just, or this woman is acting really, I mean, claiming that God is telling them they're the hand of God's wrath. I'm taking this actually from my brother's own words. Um, and, and threatening people. And it gives the judges more power to instantaneously commit these people into psychiatric evaluation and treatment. Um, and it, it doesn't seem to give any length of time. It's, it's basically building off of an existing law that basically gives at least 10 days in psychiatric evaluation um, and I think it honestly needs to be much longer. We need to bring back compassionate, competent, long-term or even permanent mental health commitment to people who are really not capable 
of functioning in society. They are um, riddled with delusions. Um, they are, they're not functioning. They're not capable of taking care of their most basic needs of hygiene, of caring for their, their nutritional needs of anything. They, they can't maintain a household. They cannot function. And there are people like this and some of them are not violent. Some of them are just incapable. Some may have been because of a something physiologically wrong with their brain functions or mm -hmm. it could have been caused by excessive drug overdoses or you know abuses or head trauma or right like or that. head trauma yeah any kind of accident like that people get into a car accident you know and that mm -hmm. kind of thing there needs to be some compassionate care for these people and one of the points i bring out in my book and uh it's been well known <sighs> the sometimes the best you can get with um, the probate process and, and petitioning a judge about a family member who is severely mentally disturbed, mentally ill, is they'll put them in a nursing home. Let's say they're 30 years old and they're violent and they'll put them into a nursing home in a room with an 86 year old man. And guess what happens? I mean, I bring out the statistics in my book of how often people have been either severely injured or even killed in nursing homes because of the severely mm -hmm. mentally ill mixed into the general population. And oftentimes the family members of these other people don't know, although you know it's rather strange. They see somebody who's 30 years old in the same room as their 86 year old grandfather but they can't do anything about it. And they can't and, ask why or because, right? Because HIPAA, like there's no, right. hey, this person might be violent. Would you yeah. like for us to move them? And it sounds like yeah. what you're talking about with, you know, going to judges and saying, I need help dealing with, like this person needs help. Will you help me get this person yeah. help? It does, it's not punitive, right? It's not, we no. don't, it is, it is out of compassion. Like you said, it is, this person is important. This person deserves a quality life. Yeah. Help us get that. And I know they've come so far, even like in nursing homes, you know, nursing homes have historically been pretty dismal. Um, but at the same time, there are good nursing homes where they have stimulating programs. They have music brought in. They have people from the outside coming in, they do readings. They do any number of things to, in a sense, give these people a life rather than just sitting them in a chair and, and sticking pills down their throats. I mean, they're, you know, nursing homes themselves have come a ways with providing for the mental stimulation that these mm -hmm. people need. And I think the same could be done for the severely mentally ill to put them in, in various departments where some, yes, they're violent and Honestly, in many cases, the best you can do is maybe keep them somewhat sedated. Um, others, again, some people, even though they are severely like psychopathic, they're very intelligent and oh, they know what absolutely. they're doing is wrong. I mean, our, our legal system recognizes there is a form of mental illness where the people are fully cognizant. You take somebody like Ted Bundy, you know, I mean, this was a scheming person. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew it was wrong. He knew he didn't want to get caught. Um, and so you do have people like that. They should not be in with the general population of people who are maybe brain injured or or anything like that. So I think we need to have like a special, you know, designated 
section of a nursing home or maybe a particular type of nursing home that deals with those who are psychopathic. Our prisons are not good psychiatric facilities. They are not meant to treat people. And oftentimes it only worsens their condition. Well, and it, I, you know, you want to talk about the cost that, you know, Kennedy and, and yeah. others, they, they talked about the cost of, oh, look how much money we're going to be saving. Well, you know what? We have spent far more money in trying to build more prisons and trying to put in more police in force and trying to do this and trying to do that than we would have ever spent had we had a compassionate, privately run, state monitored facility, mental health <laughs> facility system. We need that. That's the thing. I think that that our criminal justice system is so punitive rather than reformative. Like oh, yeah. we just want to shove people in prison, let them do their time. And then they yeah. leave instead of, you know, in, in my research, there is a whole lot of overlap that I've noticed between mental illness and addiction and, yep. you know, being incarcerated. Yeah. And I, I also believe not always, but in general substance, use, excessive, you know, substance abuse tends to come from self-medicating or like there's, there's a reason behind it. And also, you know, like there are those people, like you talked about with those personality disorders that they're, you know, short of them really wanting to change and understanding and Mm -hmm. going to therapy and doing a lot of work that doesn't mean that they're not gonna they're still gonna have those thoughts because that is what a personality disorder is it is lifelong long term yeah um and perhaps those people won't be rehabilitated in the same way Mm -hmm. you know like myself i i'll be honest i was one of those people that could hardly function Mm -hmm. because of my mental illness now i would argue that because I was married and because I had a supportive family, mm-hmm. that is the only reason that I was not homeless. Yeah. Um, and also the only reason I am alive today is because I had the resources to go get care. And I think that, like you said, with not having those community resources and, you know, you talked about like the, the community health you know, community resource centers are, I, I'm sure there are some in my community, but there's none that just come oh, to the top of my head other than yeah. the MHMR here. So mental health, mental retardation, yeah. but it can take months to get in to yeah. see someone. And if you're mm-hmm. truly in crisis, that's not going to work. No, and this is also where like, and I don't want to make it a political thing, but when you hear defund the police, I I think that what people really mean is provide community resources. Mm-hmm. And right is here in in my police department here because I've done research our um recruits typically get 40 hours of firearm training. Uh-huh. 4 hours of de-escalation and mental health like you yeah. know education. And I don't think that I, you know, I don't want to defund, like in my head, I'm like, no, don't defund the police. Let's teach people mm-hmm. how to interact, what mental illness looks like and understanding that somebody that's having a psychotic break yep. isn't dangerous in the way that they 
like the police think, right? You know, this person really just needs help. And I think, um, you know, it's it's that having mental crisis response teams, having community centers that provide a safe place for people to go, Mm -hmm. um, more medical resources, because I mean, also if you're in constant pain and you don't have access to a doctor, you might go out and start using, you know, a street drug, like you might end up on heroin. Right. Because that's, you know, and so if we have people have access to all of that care, and like I said, I think addiction needs to be looked at differently, as in we need to treat the addiction right instead of criminalizing it. Now, yeah. And it can take a long time for some people. Um, you know, addictions are very difficult. I mean, you know, even something like cigarette smoking. My right. mother tried to get, she tried to stop so many times. And I mean, they deliberately put a substance in the cigarettes to make them addictive. And she finally stopped, but it took her decades to try to get beyond that craving and stressors would bring it out. You know, when she, oh, you know, she, that's that calming cigarette, you know, that she would have and stuff. And it's the same thing for even, you know, far, far more addictive, far more dangerous drugs. It's the same idea where, yeah, you know, prisons are not going to address that. If anything, they may make it worse. And we do need to have some kind of a system in place that says it's not going to take three weeks for somebody to get beyond addictions. It sometimes doesn't even take three months. It may take six months. And during that time, too, people need to learn other types of like coping skills. Yes, you, you are blessed to have had compassionate family members who helped you out during your time. And I'm sure good friends too. Oh, yeah. um, and thankfully we had the same situation with um, some good compassionate family members and also friends who were there for us. They were supporting us and rooting us on um, because it's just downright depressing on top of being frustrating when you are being stalked, you can't get the laws enforced um, I mean, we were actually told by victim advocates, get out of Connecticut, because this state is so bad about not enforcing the law. That's why we went to Tennessee, because they have a slightly better record of enforcing the law. And they have been better about it um, in court judgments and in um, also police action um, and warning my brother to stay away. Um, but we need some kind of you know specific treatment. Mm-hmm. for people and we need to take into account kind of like what we were talking about before our our recording people have different learning abilities and different ways in which they comprehend things and for some it may take three months for others it may take three years or more to really comprehend all of the issues that go into why they're doing a certain thing that's destructive to themselves and to others around them And again, if they know that they have that compassionate system in place that sets those good boundaries, you know, um, it's kind of like, you know, you, you have a playground and they've actually done studies on this, where if you have a playground that doesn't have a fence, the kids tend to be like closer in involved with each other and, and kind of stay away from the street more so than if you had a fence, 
where they can run along the fence and everything else because it's a good, healthy boundary. And it teaches them to say, this area is safe, that area is not. And when they have those clear, distinct boundaries, when they really start to understand that and form those new mind habits of thinking, that's where, again, the support system they need, it has to be continuous. And, you know, outpatient programs are good to a point, but too many in those outpatient, first of all, they, they, they kick them out far sooner than they're able to handle. And right. also they really don't have a lot of the same support that they need. One of the reasons why we have such a high recidivism rate is because, I mean, it literally does get down to three hots and a flop. They're, they know what it's like. If you ever saw the movie Shawshank Redemption, you know, they talk about that when, you know, you serve all this time, you get out and it's like, oh my goodness, I'm lost. Plus you've had the stigma of, oh, you know, it's on your record, you know, you can't get a job type of thing. Right. I, I, you know, prison reform is also another issue that we really need to address because the two are really interlinked with the mental health program problems and also the crime problems, because really you have to get to the root issue. Sometimes people commit crimes in a sense, that's an addiction for them. It gives them that satisfaction that it would be just the same as if they guzzled, you know, <laughs> two bottles of, of vodka or if they shot up in their arm or sniffed or snorted up. It's the same kind of addictive behavior um, of committing a crime. It's that rush, you know, people who shoplift, it's that rush. Uh, right. And I don't understand it. I, I, I just don't. But I also think too, there's like that homeless piece as well, where some oh, yeah. homeless people would rather mm-hmm. be, you know, in jail for a few days because it's warm. They know they're going to be fed. They're going to get to, take a shower and you know and so I I can understand that like if that was if I had to break the law Mm -hmm. yeah or they shouldn't have to break the law to get the help they need (laughs) that's the whole thing you know you mentioned smoking and so it got me just thinking about my own I I struggle I've struggled I started smoking when I was 12 Mm -hmm. um and I quit on and off. And when I say quit on and off, like I found out I was pregnant and I quit until I was done nursing. And then I started smoking again. And then my mom did the same thing. Yeah. So this time around, I am five months and seven days without um, a cigarette. Good for you. So, you know, I'm not having a cigarette today. We'll make a decision about tomorrow, tomorrow. (laughs) Because sometimes that's where I have to be is like today. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's this minute and I, and that's five months without mm-hmm. a cigarette. I still have those moments of, oh my gosh, that would, wouldn't it be nice to just go sit outside and, you know, smoke a cigarette, get away from all of the things, all the people, Yeah, you know, you talked about how it can take a long time, whether it's addiction or whatever, to find the right answers. Mm-hmm. And I have shared over and over again, that I saw my first psychiatrist at 15. Mm. I got a diagnosis of bipolar when I was 36. Mm. I saw my diagnosis came from the sixth, sixth psychiatrist I saw. Mm. And I was trying to get help, but I wasn't getting the, the right treatment. Right. And And so people want to get well. I think mm-hmm. not all, but most people do. But how many people have the ability and the resources to one, see that many doctors and, Mm -hmm. you know, keep going and all the therapists I saw, um, 
but it's like I and then the support system, like if I hadn't had, you know, a home, if I hadn't had the education that I, you know, I did, and I don't know where I would have ended up. And, you know, I, I just recorded just myself. I was looking for something for my daughter um, and I found a letter from that I wrote when I was 13 that was essentially a um, a suicide note. Um, oh, wow. I said, if you like Papa, which is what I call my dad, Papa, if you find this, no, um, and I commit and I killed myself. No, it's not your fault. And that I love you. Mm. And if thir- that's where I was at 13, like these mental illnesses are lifelong and, oh, and, yeah. and we, you know, one of the things that like you talked about though, that I kind of want to like come back to was you said people would ask you like, what did you do to cause your brother to do this? Yeah. With that one, like, I think it's safe to say that like, you didn't do anything like your brother, right. was just mentally yeah. wanted the attention, wanted the, mm-hmm. it almost sounds like he craved causing someone pain. Oh, he, I addressed that in my book. I, I have actually witnessed him and my other brothers laughing hysterically when they were either scheming or actually had accomplished causing pain to other people. And, you know, I respond to that by saying I was born and I was born female. That's what I did to my brothers. You know, I mean, it, it, that's how ridiculous it is, you know, mm-hmm. that they, it's been a lifelong resentment. And, you know, it, it is certainly not my fault. Um, but, you know, and that's just it. There are people out there, you know, and, and you know, you and I come from a church background, we're mm-hmm. both Christians. And how many times I've heard people say, oh, really, everybody's good. Everybody's really good. Or, and it's like, you know what? There are some people who really are not good. There are people who really enjoy being quite bad. Um, and, and that's a reality. And we, I, it's not scriptural to go around saying everybody's good. Everybody's really good. You know, I mean, everybody's not beyond redemption. But more people, I would say there are some people who have more of an effort they have to exert to make their lives right with God and other people. Um, For some people, it's a lot easier, but for some people, they just simply do not enjoy doing good for other people. And I explained it this way, because some people say, well, you know, why are they, your brothers, especially this one, so obsessed with doing all this damage to people? And I said, it's really about power and control. He's addicted to that. But I said, you know, think about the things you really enjoy doing. It could be, you know, crocheting, it could be horseback riding, it could be, you know, hiking, whatever it is. With that same degree of passion and perhaps even more, that's how much somebody with a severe psychopathy disorder, that's how much they enjoy doing damage to people. I mean, they have actually done even brain studies on some of these people with MRIs and things. And they find out that there are distinct differences between those in the general population who function and show empathy and compassion toward people Versus these people who are literally, they they have the potential to become mass murderers. You know, I mean, that guy out in, uh, was it Idaho, mm-hmm. um, who killed the, the college students, you know, I mean, he exhibited no empathy and he had a history of exhibiting no empathy. And so I, I've always said any of these kinds of conditions, they don't stay static. They will get worse if not addressed. And even if sometimes they are addressed, 
they'll get worse if they are severe schizophrenia and you know that kind of severity but yeah and and trauma too um when you've been traumatized by someone it literally does do damage to your brain yeah it, it does and and your brain is always in the process of trying to figure out the whys and hows and everything else and you have to reach a point where you have to accept there is no logical reason why and and that will help you not only in dealing with the ongoing trauma of somebody who's stalking you um and and all of that continuous problem and stress and crisis and all that it will help you to deal with it better once you accept that there is no why and it'll also help you in your faith journey to say there is no why and there is more to life than just this life. And I am going to appreciate every given moment I have. And, you know, I, I, I say this kind of facetiously, but the best revenge you can have against your abuser is to live a good life. You know, I interviewed someone last week who her niece was was murdered by an oh. intimate partner. And she said, my my like my mantra my motto what led me to helping others was that i saw something that the best revenge is a life well lived yeah yeah i'm not i'm not unique in that i mean in well, saying that truth in that like yeah. i'm going to not like you did all of this to me okay but look how good i'm doing mm-hmm. like look at all the things i've accomplished this yeah. you and kind of like a, you know it makes me think of like when the little kid is, you know, like nanny nanny boo boo, right? You know, like a, <laughs> kind of like look at what I did, and you can't stop me. That's that's kind of yeah. what I think of. But yeah. I think part of that is what does mental health care look like for victims too? Yeah. Oh, I know. Um, I kind of address some of this again. It's overlapping with the whole problem with cults or cultic like. Uh, religious manipulators. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a section in my book, um, again, Fighting for Justice, um, that's called Raping and Slaughtering Souls for Jesus or Any Other God by Any Other Name, Mm -hmm. because that's exactly what they want to do. They want to destroy your idea of a good, loving, just God, and they want to replace God in your life. They want to become your God. Mm -hmm. And usually it's a terrifying you know, my way or the highway, um, oppressive God, where you have to try to meet their needs and all this. And if you don't, well, then they always use, well, you know, I'm the mouthpiece of God. And for all intents and purposes, I am God, you know, and so you're offending God by not doing what I tell you, you have to do. And that is where my, the worst of my brothers is the other brothers support him because they know it's all a religious scam. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, he's, he has, pulled that same stunt in the court system in nine lawsuits he filed against me. Two of those were joined by my other brothers, never without an attorney. They did it what's called pro se or self-represented. And two of those were in probate court. They were trying to dig up my mother and take possession of her body. Yeah. Wow. As she, you know, laid there, you know, at the gravesite next to where my father's buried, but they only wanted her body. So um, very, very sick, very disturbing. And, and again, with the whole thing with cults is that they want to drive you to the point of utter submission 
to dependency, them. Right. Like and if you yeah. reject that. Yeah. It, it's, it's so sick. And you know, I struggled with, and I I'm free about admitting this. I struggled with those momentary fleeting thoughts of suicide, you know, to just, because it's like you wake up in the morning. It's like, oh, man, you don't even want to wake up. And it's those fleeting thoughts of, you know, why don't I just get myself in the garage and turn the ignition on and, you know, anything. And and it's like anything, you know, and I think it was a fleeting thought. And I said, no, because that's what they want. And I'm not going to give that to them. And it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. I don't want to commit spiritual suicide either by being so angry at God that I just say, basically, go F yourself. You know, I'm not going to about to do that. Because that's another thing that these spiritual abusers want mm-hmm. to do. That if you don't follow me, it, it's the same thing like ex-partners. If you don't follow me, well, then I'm going to make sure no one else loves you either. You know, God won't love you either. And that's one of the things that so many people I've talked to have come out of abusive cults or have, they've been family members of cultic members, cultic people who have targeted them. Like my brother has targeted me, you know, follow me or I'm going to make your life a misery. Um, this is what they want to do. They basically want you to get to a point where you commit spiritual suicide. You give up all your faith in God. And as I tell people, I am not going to let religious hypocrites and frauds dictate who God is. That is not going to be what the choice I make. They don't tell me who God is. God didn't drop dead and leave them in charge. And the reason why they're doing this, again, it is a form of psychopathy. It is a form of inflicting pain on people that they enjoy because it's all about their addiction to control and power. And, um, you know, it, it's just such an overlap that I think anybody who like does research on Jim Jones or any of these other David Koresh, you know, those are the big famous names. But as I tell people, every single one of these cult followers started in an obscure way. They just had a few followers and then it ballooned. And with the internet, it's even worse. I mean, within hours, they can get a following. And my brother has had followers who he lies to, you know, oh, we're wanted fugitives. We're domestic terrorists. We're child abusers. We're, you know, all these things. None of it's true. Um, but he convinces these people and they never check them out. And the next thing we know, we've had people stalking us at our home who are his cult followers. We've had people calling me on my phone because they're his cult followers. And in some cases, we've had to set them straight by giving them documentation, court documentation and everything else. And of course, I have my other website up um, is stopabusivelawsuits.com. And I've got a boatload of documentation there to refute any and all of his lies against me. And so that's what people need to do. I I tell people, don't even believe anything I say just because I'm saying it. Research me. Look at the documentation. It's out there. Okay. I am an open book. I never wanted to be an open book. I wanted to just live a quiet life, you know, and, and yet... For whatever reason, this is this has happened and it happens to a lot of people. And so when you're dealing with an abusive litigant, you have to deal with the mental illness issue. And that was one of the issues that we brought up to some of our attorneys. It's like, isn't there any way we can get the judge to order him into mental health treatment? Everybody can see he's stark raving. You know, I mean, he is he is severely delusional. And and malicious. He, I mean, they had to call extra security in the courtrooms. You know, um, it's state and federal courtrooms 
because of the way he was acting toward court, court staff. He sued the judges. I mean, it's just this is the extent that someone will cause so much disorder and disruption and trauma in people's lives um, because clearly they were concerned for their own safety. And so I'm applauding this new bill that the Tennessee legislature has. You know, I wish something like that would be in all states. I wish maybe yeah. it's a step in the right direction. I know Governor Youngkin right across the border from us in Virginia, he is also trying to get more attention into the mental health services for people in true need. And it's not just addiction services, it's every form of mental illness. And we need that for everybody, for the people who are mentally ill and for society. And before we end, like with your brother, a big chunk of his abuse of the system and like the mental illness showed up without any crimes being committed. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, he, he did commit crimes, but yeah. Other places where you saw that mental illness mm -hmm. and yeah. it still wasn't, the court didn't help even when there is all of this in front of them where, yeah, look at how he's using the system. Look at these people saying he needs mental health treatment. Mm -hmm. Except some people cannot be reformed. That's true. I think, I think the I think the majority of people can be, mm -hmm. um, and I also think that like you know we talked about there's just not the resources, whether it's because you're homeless and you're trespassing, mm -hmm. because you don't have a place to live, we put them into jail and then they stay because they can't pay their bond, mm -hmm. they stay you know to however many nights and then they leave and. And then oftentimes they may not have made it to the next court date. Yeah. They have no, right. Then they're back in, but mm -hmm. we've never helped them with. Exactly. Homes, finding training, a new job, treatment of their mental illness. Mm. If they have one, instead, it's just a revolving door. And yeah. if we're not taking that time to, um, and, and, giving the resources to helping end those maybe or you know like a my mental illness is never going to end right i can take medication i can go to therapy i can learn how to deal with it but it's going to be there forever mm -hmm. but if we don't teach people those skills and provide that much needed assistance we're just going to keep ending up in the same yeah you know cycle of like, okay, back in jail. Yeah. Okay, now you're out, now you're back. And it makes me wonder, and, and I'm sure that there's numbers out there, and maybe there's not because we've never done this, but what would happen if we spent money on mental health care? How much would be take, like how much money would no longer be needed in the criminal justice system? Exactly. And, and that's just yeah. it because it would snowball because you would also be enhancing your communities where businesses would say, instead of right now, like you, you take out in like San Francisco or Washington, they're just saying, forget it, we're out of here, which destroys the economic well-being of the entire community. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just it is that we are actually, uh, it's costing us far more in human lives, not just the monetary, but in actual you know, human lives. It's costing more to just pretend this problem doesn't isn't as bad as it is. 
And, and the police are frustrated. I know the judges are frustrated. The legislators really, they're afraid of being sued by like, you know, ACLU groups and stuff like that, to which, I mean, I have to respond, get a backbone. Okay. You have a right to protect the public. Everybody has, you know, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, and that includes the mentally ill to give them the best quality life that can be given to them. And it would be no different than somebody with Alzheimer's. We all know Alzheimer's is a progressive disease. Severe schizophrenia is an organic disorder within the brain. And in some cases where you have either like a severe drug addiction or anything like that, it that can also, it can be a progressive problem. I mean, if you boil it down, we're all dying. We could all become senile. You know, it, it is the process of life. But in the meantime, before we take our final breath, we are our brother's keeper. And we do need to provide for good mental health treatment for all the very, it, it's like what you said earlier about cancer treatment, you know, or any other type of medical condition. You know, you don't go to a proctologist for a foot problem. <laughs> you know? And you, you know, like, yeah, if you went to a neurologist because your knee needed surgery, right? You wouldn't get exactly. And, and what you were talking yeah. about, you know, that's you know, the podcast is called the Mental Society because my belief, and and it sounds like yours too, is that mental health impacts every single one of us every day. It impacts our communities, and when we open yep. those conversations about what mental health and mental illness look like, and mm -hmm. how to improve that. Um, yeah. and make sure that people get the care they need, whether that mm -hmm. is the person that is having situational depression because of the loss of a loved one and having therapy available to them, or somebody who, you know, is severely mentally ill or handicapped and providing them a safe place to receive care, not and not be yeah. part of the revolving door of the criminal justice system. And then also providing that care in the community for, you know, and in prisons, like there's just so many places that we're not impacting mental health care. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's just, there's not enough. And so like your story is such, you know, it highlights the financial impact, the emotional impact, the impact on the criminal justice system and the court system Right. I mean, how like if you think of how much money it costs for someone to sue someone else, like even just right the paperwork showing up in court, even mm -hmm. if it's miss, dismissed immediately, we're talking thousands of dollars just. Absolutely. And so, again, like I'm over here thinking like, man, if we had that, let's just say it was $2,000, that $2,000 could be 20, 30 hours of therapy for someone. Yeah, or, I know. And, and like, if you think of it that way, mm -hmm. that, you know, your brother filing one lawsuit that was unfounded had the potential to prevent someone else from getting the care they need as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. Um, and so no, yeah. we argued this. We actually talked to um, a probate um, attorney and about you know, what could we do to possibly try to get him committed. And he said it is a tough process, even for families who have, for example, a, an elderly family member with Alzheimer's. He said, I have known cases where I've argued, he says, it depends upon the judge. If you get a good judge, 
they will get those people the care they need. But he said, I have gone before judges. And he said, I know I've talked with other attorneys, gone before judges in that county and in other counties where my brother lives. And they have said they get a judge and the physician has signed off. The general you know, practice of the family physician has said, yes, this person's Alzheimer's is declining. Um, the police have given notice to say, you know, they're wandering or they're becoming violent. And the family members are all saying, please, we need to get him into a nursing home. And the judge will turn to the person with Alzheimer's and say, do you want to go to a nursing home? No, 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 no. And the judge says, okay, you're not going to a nursing home. I, I mean, how dare that judge practice medicine by overriding what an actual physician has said is the worsening condition of this Alzheimer patient. And, and there, that is just absolutely inexcusable. And yeah. honestly, I think anybody who's like that, uh, you know, judges are attorneys, okay? They need to be disbarred or disciplined at bare minimum because that is truly unjust for all parties and for society, you know? I mean, we had an incident over the last year where one of our homeless people got run over in the middle of the night on the highway here. Because again, either delusional, whether it's because of a mental condition or whether it's you know the addiction with the drugs within his system, who knows? But he got run over. It you know I don't know. It was like two o'clock in the morning, um, and it's like this was preventable, you know. And we do we we you're right. The the monies would be better spent creating appropriate facilities for specific conditions. Um, severities of these kinds of, of mental health problems. And, you know, I certainly know that my mental health would be a lot better. I wouldn't have to deal with, you know, daily struggles against despair sometimes. And, and again, you know, we have a lot of things going on in our society that also very much concern me. Um, but just the family issues, you know, if I knew my brothers and, and one is actually in a nursing home now, he's in his seventies. And so the state stepped in, um, He's been needing that for the last maybe 20 years to be in a nursing home. But they finally, from what I understand, put him into a nursing home and voluntarily committed him. Um, but the other three, if they were all in nursing homes from like 20, 30 years ago, um, specialized facilities for taking care of their mental health issues, ugh, not only myself, but so many other people who have been affected by my brothers would have been spared all of the trauma, all of the stress, all of the fear and anxiety. You know, we've had death threats thrown at us and everything. And, and he has guns, which, I, you know, I'm a big gun advocate. You know, I need that to protect myself. And also there should be, right, like if you have been convicted of or accused of or have a mental illness, like it's not, it's not in our and when I say are, I mean the collective are best interest for people to have guns that, that are mentally ill. There's actually a federal law that requires psychiatrists or any mental health um, professional to contact the feds to say, this is this person's condition. He has severe schizophrenia and he should, I, I recommend he does not have any guns. And they put him on a watch list. But so many psychiatrists don't do that. And as like one of podcaster mentioned to me about this, it's like they're probably too afraid to because yeah. if the mentally ill person finds out that your name is on the, you know, 
they have put your name on the watch list so that they can't get guns. Well, I mean, you can get guns anywhere and you don't have to kill a person with a gun. You know, you can kill a person with a car or your bare hands or a knife, you know, or bow and arrow, you know, that kind of thing. And so probably the psychiatrists are so burnt out and they know too, the way our legislators made these laws so many years ago, they um, took away any legal liability to both the mental health professionals and the judges Mm -hmm. in case these people upon immediate release or whenever they went out and they killed somebody. They're not legally culpable for that, even though it's so evident that they should have kept these people longer. Um, We had one of our attorneys actually tell us um, the the partner, the ex-partner was in prison for his abuse and his death threats against this our attorney's client at that time and his client tearfully pleaded with the judge please do not give him early release he was asking for early release. he came up for early release and she she said please judge please don't do this he's threatening me even from prison i am terrified that as soon as he gets out he's going to kill me and the judge said well i just don't see any probable cause you know and all this probable cause i mean he was making clear documented death threats in prison and yet she released this guy and that very night he killed her you know think and our 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 attorney was saying you know i have to go to counseling because of what i see every single day excuse me so it's it's very very and that's uh, it's it, it just snowballs well and that's the you know another point is that the mental health care and the justice system and the abusive lawsuits that you talk about and these lawyers trying to help victims. Yeah. You know, they all of those people's mental health is being impacted. Mm-hmm. And how do you think, right? And then how are they experiencing their home life? How, yeah. or are they having a really bad day and, end up, you know, yelling at the clerk at the grocery store? And it's not the clerk at the grocery store that they're really mad at. It's just that's the person that they can yell at. Well, then mm-hmm. that grocery store clerk, their mental health, isn't as good because they're feeling abused and then they might treat the next customer not as well. And that might be the customer that has a history of violence with their partner and just enough for them to get mad and go or or kill their partner. And so I think that's the thing is we don't understand all of those layers fully. Mm -hmm. Um, I I really think I, I, I really think law schools are doing a huge disservice to their students and to society. They really need to be emphasizing a well, more well-rounded education for law school students to understand the human dynamics behind things. Like they, I think honestly, um, some of the best attorneys have some degree of medical experience where maybe they switch their majors or something like that. But I think law schools need to require physicians, especially psychiatrists, psychologists to come in and and say, these are these conditions and you need to understand this for your your clients um, and defending your clients against somebody maybe with these conditions, or if you become a judge. And, you know, these judges are just not getting it. You know, they only look at the law in a very narrow way. And it's like, you have to take in the whole picture. And yet, ironically, we actually had judges say, 
uh, clearly he has mental health problems. Well, you think, (laughs) you know, and it's like, well, then do something about it. And like I said, the the new Tennessee bill that's out there, I hope it gets enough support and I hope it passes. It does empower judges with a little more room to um, give more serious commitment, immediate commitment and, and more serious treatment for people who are exhibiting severe. And I do want to emphasize severe I'm not talking about somebody who has, you know, oh, I have anxiety. I got to take Xanax or, you know, I have depression or, you know, bipolar. There are other conditions which are not anywhere as debilitating and as dangerous, really, as some other conditions. And again, it's like with any other medical situation, you know. And it's it's just like uh, before we we end what you're talking about with compassionate care with getting people the, the help that they need by being committed somewhere. Mm-hmm. You are not talking about just the rant, you know, the average person that's struggling with their mental health. Like yeah. We're talking here about people that have serious mental illness that they likely will not even be able to recover from right. fully with medical intervention. Like it is and, and is tradition is known until we get a cure is progressive. Until there's a cure, it's progressive. You and, know, and that's that's the problem with severe mental illness, um, is that it is progressive. And even with medication, it still is a progressive condition. It's no different than if you had ALS or Parkinson's or any of that. And that's where again, I think in some ways the stigma has to be taken out of the equation right. that because in, in many cases, yes, I know my brothers have actually admitted they know what they're doing is wrong, but they enjoy doing it. I, I've heard them admit that. Okay. But at the same time, when you get to a delusional state, you cannot reason with somebody in that state, whether it's because of something organically wrong with their brain function or whether it's because they've taken a boatload of drugs, whether over the counter or illegal. And and you can't reason with somebody like that. And when they get to such a severe state where they are literally imminently a danger to themselves and others are threatening people or they're threatening to do harm to themselves. That's a severe condition that goes beyond crying, you know, because I wake up and oh, I'm so depressed about, you know, my family situation or, you know, I'm so depressed about my work situation. That's an entirely different animal. It would be like comparing ALS with you sprained your ankle. You know, it's that right. Worlds apart, you know, I, I don't know if your your listeners are going to know ALS, but it has no. basically it's also called Lou Gehrig's disease. Yeah, your body is a, yeah progressive yeah. Um, neuromuscular problem, yeah condition. So yeah, I think like I, before, I just want to make sure people when they're listening to this that Paulette is not talking about every single person that has a mental illness or mental health struggle. Lock them up. This is yeah. people that have consistently shown that they are going to continue to offend. They do not want necessarily to get well. And this is a lifelong debilitating and progressive. Right. And and putting them into some sort of care protects them and protects all of us as Mm -hmm. a society. And I think both of us could agree that it saves our financial, like our, society financially. Oh, absolutely. Some of the stress off of 
the criminal justice system, even the emergency hospitals, you know, yep. emergency rooms, um, and the way that they're just potentially endangering other people's mm -hmm. lives. Because really, can you put a value, like an actual value on a life? That's just it. Um, yeah. Um, so, you know, to my listeners, I would really encourage you to go check out um, more about Paulette and her, what she does and her book. Um, you can find her book and a whole bunch of other resources at fightingforjusticebook.com. I'm going to put that in the show notes. I'm also going to find a little bit more about this law in Tennessee and throw that in, in the show notes. Um, and yeah, it's, it's HB 0508 is okay. the, the house bill is 0508 HB. Um, there's a, there's an, a Senate bill as well. And I can't remember what the number is, but I remember what the, the house bill is. It's the same bill. And, and that's, you know, so let's hope that that is a model for what the rest of the country will move into. And because it is protecting the patient and the whole community, it's not punitive. It's truly about caring and protecting and wanting the best for everyone involved. So I'll make sure I put that, all that information down there so people can check it out. And if you live in Tennessee, call your representatives. Mm -hmm. And if you live in other states, call your representatives and tell them that you want more care available and more funding for mental health care. Yeah, <laughs> encourage. This is a bipartisan uh, supported effort by Governor Youngkin in Virginia, too. Um, where he's trying to um, provide more funds, but also provide better services for the those people suffering mental illness issues of all degrees, including up to severe. And so I'm hoping that he can get that off the ground. And he, again, there's bipartisan support for it. So yes, do contact, you know, everybody needs to stay on top of their legislature's activities. And every every single legislature has a website it's part of our duty and it's part of really our right. And, and so support your, your representative, you're going to vote for, you know, support their bills when they're, when they're proposing something that's really good, let them hear from you to say, Hey, great. This is wonderful. If they're supporting something that's not good, they need to hear from you yeah. too. But yeah, do that because that really, they, it's part of our, really our duty, our right. And even if you didn't put that person into office with your vote, Mm -hmm. they still represent you. And that's what I want to remember. Right. Like, people, they still represent you. So you, mm -hmm. even if you didn't vote for them, you have every right to contact them. And I have a, um, there's a state senator here who I am, I am friends with his office manager because I call, I call a lot. Um, and yeah. because I, it's things that I'm passionate about, whether it is funding for schools to, access to guns, to access to medical care. Like there are so many layers to what our our lawmakers do, which maybe is not so great because then they have to be experts at everything. And we all know that you can't do all of the things. So um, thank you so much, Paulette, for joining me and really opening this conversation up about what serious mental illness and in, in law and the justice system look like and your experience as well Thank you for being vulnerable and sharing so much of your story. 
So with well, thank you for doing all of this. This is really so important that you you do this. And so thank you. And, and thank you to your listeners too. My passion project. And so um, I really hope that, um, you know, that those listening have learned here and continue to learn about how mental health and society meet. So to all of our listeners, I would encourage you to go out and open up a conversation and discover how mm-hmm. mental health is experienced in your world. You can find more episodes of The Mental Society in all the places you find your favorite podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss anything. New episodes with guests are released every Monday. And then we'll have additional episodes that are just short me talking. You get to hear my random ramblings, which can be fun sometimes. Um, So make sure you apply or uh, subscribe so you don't miss that. And also check out our website, thementalsociety.com. Um, these resources will be um, there as well. And um, there's other articles, additional resources. If you are in need of assistance, um, there are links to all kinds of things there. And remember that you are not alone in your struggles, that hope and help are all around you. Um, until next time, this is Amanda Dolan, wishing you good health, mental and otherwise. Mm-hmm.